Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to today's episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. On today's episode, a listener writes in and they have a really good question. Why is there so much Old Testament violence? Well, the Old and the New Testament have much to say about why there's so much violence in the Old Testament. When I've heard this question asked, people typically want to know about God's character, why it seems in the Old Testament there is so much violence, and in the New Testament there's a God of love. But we need to understand that God's love and wrath are revealed in the Old and the New Testament. In fact, in the Old Testament, the Lord is declared as compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. In the New Testament, the Lord's loving kindness and mercy are manifested more fully through the love of God, who so loved the world that he gave his his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, John 3.16. In the Old Testament, we discover the Lord dealing with Israel in the same way as a loving father deals with a child. When Israel willfully sinned against the Lord and worshipped idols, the Lord chastised them. Each time, the Lord would deliver Israel only once they repented of their idolatry. In fact, the Lord deals with the people of God in the New Testament the same way. In Hebrews uh, 12, 6, the Lord says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises everyone he accepts as a son. Throughout the Old Testament, Bible readers discover the judgment and the wrath of God poured out on sin. In the New Testament, we discover the wrath of God is still being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the Lord is no different in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. The Lord is immutable. He's unchanging. And while we might see one aspect of his nature revealed in specific passages of the Bible more than other attributes... Uh, The Lord himself does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. The Bible contains one message throughout the unified whole in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. In fact, throughout Scripture, God lovingly calls people to himself because he is a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abundant in truth and love. And we also see people refuse to worship the Lord choosing instead to worship gods of their own making in Romans 1. And since the Lord is holy, he's righteous, all sin, past, present, and future, must be judged. In his infinite love, the Lord has provided a payment for sin and reconciliation for sinners to escape his wrath through the Lord Jesus. The Savior who is promised in the Old Testament is fully revealed in the New Testament. Only envisioned in the Old Testament, the sending of Jesus is revealed in all of his glory in the New Testament. And so both the Old and the New Testament are given to make us wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3.15 says. When we study the Old and the New Testament, we learn that it's a God who does not change like the shifting shadows, James 1.17. 
And one of the strongest criticisms towards the Bible, it comes from harsh opponents of Christianity who believe that the Lord commanded the killing of entire nations in the Old Testament. There was violence, we need to be clear, in the Old Testament, but the question is whether it was justifiable or condoned by the Lord. Well, the Canaanite culture was a morally wicked society. They were aggressive, they were brutal people who engaged in bestiality, incest, and child sacrifice. In fact, the Lord said to them in Leviticus 18.25, the land vomited out its inhabitants. The judgment here was not ethically motivated. Individual Canaanites like Rahab and Jericho could still find that mercy follows repentance. For example, in Joshua 2, the Lord desires that the wicked turn from their sin rather than die. And besides dealing with national sins, God used Canaan's conquest to create a religious and even a historical context in which he could eventually introduce the Messiah into the world. The Messiah would bring salvation not only to Israel and also to Israel's enemies, including Canaan. God gave the Canaanite people more than 400 years to repent of their wickedness, more than sufficient time. In fact, Hebrews 11.31 tells us that the Canaanites were disobedient. The Canaanites were aware of God's power. They could have sought repentance, but they continued until in their rebellion until the, until the bitter end. And, and second, the Lord is sovereign all over all of life. He can take action whenever he sees fit. He alone gives life, and God alone has the right to take it whenever he chooses and does so at death. All life begins and ends with God. While it's wrong for humanity to take a life, except in the case of capital punishment, war, and even self-defense, it's not wrong for God to ever do so. And we recognize this when we accuse some person or even authority who takes human life as playing God. God is under no obligation to extend anyone's life even one moment of one day. How, how and why we die is entirely up to the Lord. In fact, the issue of God commanding violence in the Old Testament is complicated, and still we must remember that God sees things from an eternal perspective. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8-9 reminds us that the Lord's ways are not our ways. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that, that God is both kind and severe in Romans eleven twenty two, And while it's true that, that God's holy character demands that, that sin be punished, his grace and his mercy remain extended to those who are willing to repent and be saved. The Canaanite destruction pro provides us with a sober reminder that, that while our God is gracious and merciful, he is still a holy God of, of, of holiness and wrath. Now, Matthew is one of six illustrations of Jesus' teaching on the law in Matthew 5.17. With the other five, it, it's Jesus' affirmation of the ethical requirements of the Old Testament law, the enduring requirements. It begins with the formula that Jesus already used uh, four times in the body of his teaching. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you, in fact, in introducing his teaching, Jesus reiterated the law as revealed in the Old Covenant and reaffirmed by the prophets is not to be set aside because it is binding in Matthew 5.17. In fact, one example in Jesus' teaching here illustrates the contemporary error regarding retaliation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not setting aside restitution nor the law of the tooth or lex talionis. 
Jesus here is challenging his listeners to consider their attitude, and so they responded correctly to personal injustice. Personal insult and injury rather than assault, which is public injury, is the issue that Jesus here is addressing by mentioning the right cheek being struck in Matthew 5.40. And handling insults or even clothing matters, they're basic human needs and, and they're not in the realm of public policy or even statecraft. All four illustrations Jesus gives, turning the other cheek, offering the shirt off your back, carrying someone's baggage an extra mile, lending to to one asking for help related to the private domain. These are matters uh, or personal inconvenience or, uh, or abuse issues, not policy matters. They concern insult, not assault. Now, Jesus' teaching here, uh, to not resist evil in Matthew 5.39. It's located uh, within the idea of personal injury, not state policy. Matthew 5-7 through 7 is not a statement on the nature or even the jurisdiction of governing authorities, nor the state. Whether it's personal or private, justice does not call out for retribution. In the public sphere where the magistrate is commissioned to protect and even defend the common good, justice demands retribution. In his fascinating essay, Why I Am Not a Pacifist, C.S. Lewis um, right, considers Jesus' injunction regarding turning the other cheek, which he believes uh, cannot be intended to rule out protecting others. Does anyone suppose, he asks, that our, that our Lord's hearers understood him to mean that, that if a homicidal maniac attempting to murder a third party tried to knock me out of the way, uh, I must stand and let him get his victim? Jesus' teaching here isn't calling for absolute nonviolence in Matthew 5, 38-39. Otherwise, humanity would be obligated to turn the cheek of a third party. In fact, Lewis prefers to accept the plain reading of this text. Jesus' audience consisted, according to Lewis, of private people in a disarmed nation, and war was not what they would have been thinking by any stretch of the imagination. Now, every Christian is called to resist evil and where it's possible, as saints past and present have always understood. In no uncertain terms, the apostle states that the magistrate exists precisely uh, for this divine instituted function in Romans uh, 13, uh, 3 through 4. Now, even when Jesus forbids the sword as a means to advance the kingdom of God, the New Testament does not teach an absolute or even a principled pacifism, nor does it forbid the Christian from bearing the sword or serving as a magistrate, for that matter, in the service of society and for the greater good of the community. God's justice is an essential part of God's character in the same way that his love and his mercy are essential. Without the justice of God, justice of God, sin would run unchecked. Evil would win. There, there'd be no reward for obedience. Without the justice of God, there'd be no way human beings would respect Him. Micah six eight summarizes this when he when it says, "He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God." You see, God is just and the justifier of those who come to him in faith. Sinners say by grace through faith alone and Christ alone are to proclaim to all that divine justice has finally and even fully been satisfied in Christ. And only now can they be adopted by Christ alone. 
I want to thank you for listening or even watching this episode of the Servants of Grace Theology segment. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.